you still have your Bibles open to Romans 8, I want us to, uh, I want us to read the rest of that section together. Russ read verse 28. Let's pick up in verse 29. There Paul says, for that, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one that condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this word, for this great note of hope that comes to us from Paul's letter to the Romans. And Father, as we come to it this morning and as we think about it, as we seek to understand it and have it applied to our lives, We can only pray that you will be at work doing that. And that, Father, it will indeed be a great comfort to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been talking about uh, some of the great truths that came out of that Reformation era. We've been celebrating this year the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And so this morning we come to um, a passage... That has been frequently looked to when we think about the sovereignty of God. And this idea of the sovereignty of God is one of those strong currents that came out of the Reformation period. It's a vast biblical and theological concept that finds its home nearly on every page of Scripture all throughout the Bible. One author put the sovereignty of God this way. Divine sovereignty signifies that God is the one who sits on the throne of the universe. He is God in name as well as in all things, directing all things, and, quote, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Ephesians 1, verse 11. He continues, in his God-permitted affliction, Job acknowledges God's greatness and splendor in contrast to his own pride and sin. 
Quote, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Job 42.2 Job finally realizes that God's purposes are supreme and that he is sovereign. Our own confession says it this way, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeable, ordain whatsoever comes to pass. This morning in our confession from the Heidelberg Catechism, another confession that comes out of that Reformation era, <clears throat> we... Um, We uh, see there integrated the words of Christ himself. When we read that we are not our own, but we belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He's set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. And then it goes on, in fact, all things must work together, what? For my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life. In the section that Russ read for us, Romans 8.28, we can begin to get at something of the core of this idea of the sovereignty of God. And so let's think about it. Let's think about, first, what we know. Second, what it mean, or second, what it covers, and third, what it means. First, what do we know? Second, what does it cover? And third, what does it mean? The Apostle Paul, in verse 28, starts, and he says, And we know. Now, when I'm in a conversation with someone, or I'm listening to someone talk, and they say, and we all know, typically that's a, my antenna go up, and I, and I think to myself, that, that individual is getting ready to probably say something I have no idea about. And I really don't know. <clears throat> that's kind of a precursor to prepare yourselves because I'm getting ready to tell you something I know that you don't. But that's not what Paul is doing here. Paul really is attempting to rally us, if you will, to call us. And and what he's saying, because he's been talking about affliction in life, difficulties in life. And so he, he is attempting to rally his reader. And so he goes to them and he says, listen, we know this is, this is as sure as anything you can think of. It is concrete. He doesn't want to one-up us. He doesn't, he's not trying to startle us with his knowledge. He's not trying to impress us. He's trying to invite us and call us in to a truth that he believes is going to offer safety and security and a measure of comfort that they cannot find anywhere else. What he wants is for us to Go to that spot instead of the fear and the, and the travail of everything that would be happening in the back of our brain. He wants us to be in the front, thinking, trusting, understanding the sovereignty of God. Knowing that God is sovereign. 
He wants us to know the God who created everything out of nothing. He's just been talking about the the groaning of creation and how that groaning is going to come to fruition. And our groaning, that we're groaning along with creation and then there's trouble and, and all of this, but there is a finality that is coming. And he wants us to know that God and he wants us to understand that that is the God that is at work now in Paul's time and down through history and for us, even this very day. Creation groans. There are trials. There is suffering. There is pain. There is heartache. All of those things are true, Paul's acknowledging. But we know. We know it as surely and as certainly as there's a solid board under my feet or concrete under yours. We know. We know that God is sovereign. We know that He is there. We know that He is powerful. We know that He is absolutely in control of all things. For Paul, it would be as if it were a spiritual law. If if I were to take this and to hold it out and drop it, What will happen? Why, it will hit the floor, right? That's a physical law. The Apostle Paul is appealing to the sovereignty of God as if it were a spiritual law that you and I can go to with the same surety as any other law in the physical or spiritual universe. Exactly the way he says in Galatians 6.1, right? A man reaps what he sows. So here Paul would say, yes, yes, creation groans, yes, you're groaning, yes, all of those things are true, but know this, God is sovereign over it all. Now, what does that cover? Because he goes on, he says, and we know in all things, we know in all things, what? That God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now the question we want to ask is, what what all things? What are these things that the Apostle Paul is thinking about? And of course, what he is thinking about, if we're sensitive in the context, is that he is thinking about this groaning. He is thinking about, if you go back to verse 18, these present sufferings. You see, in, in the things that would happen in our lives where we, we would attribute them as being good things, we would say, wow, that's a, you know, this great thing happened in my life. Those are easy. We don't have any trouble going, look what God did, right? Um, I was driving down the highway and a car swerved and another, you know, and, 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 oh, I couldn't believe it. And, and God was so gracious and He was so amazing to, to protect me in that, right? We can attribute good to that. It's, it is the present sufferings, however, that are difficult where we have a hard time saying to ourselves, even in that, God is working for the good. Right? And so that's what Paul is trying to call our attention to. He's, he's trying to say to us, no matter the trouble, no matter the trial, no matter the present suffering, God is working it. Now, notice what he isn't saying. What he doesn't say is, 
and we know that all things are good. He's not twisting terrible things. He's not twisting difficult things. He's not twisting our trials. We can certainly acknowledge that there are things in our life that are difficult and troubling, and there are trials that come our way that we would just as soon didn't, because they're hard. And so what Paul isn't saying is, hey, just put on a rosy smile and look at everything and just go, isn't that amazing? No, no. Death, heartache, loss, difficult relationship situation, you name it. No, those are hard issues. Those are hard things. Paul isn't saying those are good. What he is saying is that God, as the sovereign of all things, is working those things out in such a way that they are good. Right there you have to take a a deep breath. Because how is that? How is it that he can take all of these things that happen in our lives and he can use them for good? Now, really the question that we need to ask next is, what is that good? What is the good that he's working everything together for? What does it cover? What does it mean? And that's where we can spend just a little bit more time. Because what it means is, and Paul tells us, right, verse 29, for those God foreknew, he predestined to become what? Formed to the image of his son. That's it. What God is moving and directing everything in the believer's life toward is conformity to the image of his son. He wants you and I to look like Jesus. Not be Jesus. He wants us to look like. He wants us to reflect the glory of God in our own lives. And so he is working all of these things together for the good. And the good is that you and I would be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the, the, the big word that we call sanctification. He is sanctifying us. He is refining us, if you will. He is, he is purging us of all the old man, the old flesh, and he is allowing us more and more to reflect the image of Christ. That's what he is moving us towards. That is the good that God has in store for you. So now you can begin to think about the difficulties in life, the challenges in life, the these present sufferings are in your life because God uses them to make you look more and more like Christ. So, <clears throat> a number of years ago, there's a small club. Now, some of you have May, may have seen, there's a, there's a show on TV, and I don't even remember that, I don't even know the name, I've watched it a couple of times. But these guys, uh, they forge and, and make swords. Have you seen this? And, uh, they pound them out and they do it and they give them, they come and they have three or four and they make a contest out of it and they have to make this kind of a sword or a knife or whatever. And so they do all the metal work to make that happen in a pretty short order. And, um, it's gotten to be kind of popular, but a number of years ago, we had a guy in Yazoo City, and uh, 
he uh this is what he did he had he lived way out in the country and uh and he made knives and so uh, a buddy of mine took me out there to see him making these knives uh the guy's name is Bobby Rico he died about a year and a half or so ago and um and I've traveled as I've traveled around and I've met different knife makers I've asked them hey you know a guy named Bobby Rico and they all know Bobby Rico because he made amazing knives, and he made them out the old-fashioned way in his backyard. <clears throat> and we went out and watched Bobby make a Damascus steel blade, and he pounded and pounded and pounded and stuck it in the fire and pulled it out of the fire and pounded it and stuck it in the fire and pulled it out of the fire. And just the hour or two that we were there, I don't know how many how many times he sledged that steel. Right? And in the end, if you've seen a, a knife blade that is this Damascus steel knife blade, the style, it is beautiful. It is amazing. And it is it is has incredible strength to it because it's been folded and folded and folded and folded and folded and folded. And it holds an amazing, you know, blade on it and and all of that. Listen, that is something to the degree of what it is like for us as we walk through life. And Christ in us is being revealed more and more. We are constantly, from every side, receiving these blows, if you will, these difficulties, and all of them shaping us and and bringing out in us, as believers, those things that would reflect the Son of God. Listen, if it's bitterness and rage and anger that that is coming out in the midst of your present sufferings, that's probably not what the Father has intended for you. What he has intended for you is that you would look more and more like the Lord Jesus. That is how God is working in our lives. That is what he is doing as he works all things together for the good. As we go through, if you will, the refiner's fire. As he purges the impurities from us. It is typically through very difficult and hard to understand circumstances. Paul goes on, because it's, it is for that image of God, that, that <clears throat> image of the Son in us, but it's more. And that more begins in verse 31, when Paul says, What then shall we say in response to these things? Now, what things? What shall we say in response to the fact that God is working everything together for our good? What shall we say in response to the fact that He has called us and He is working in us and those whom He justified He will sanctify and those whom He will sanctify He will glorify? What is, what is that for us? Like, okay, what shall we say in response to those things? And what He's saying is, so what? So what does all of that mean? If God is doing that, right? If He indeed is working everything together, what is that for you? What should that be for you? And one author said it this way. Well, it's like a pillow on which believers can lay their weary heads. 
Paul says it this way. <laughs> well, if God's for us, right, who can be against us? If God is working all things together for our good, then who can possibly be at work opposite that, undoing it? And, and who can rob us of the joy of our salvation? And who can steal any of that from us? Trouble? Hardship? No. Is there anything, is there anyone who can separate us from the love of God in Christ? No. Not even death. Because in our death, the believer is glorified. And so Paul goes all the way down and he's looking at people in real trouble and real hardship and real difficulty and he is saying to them, listen, no matter where that struggle is for you, no matter which point you are at in it, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And I take that nothing to mean nothing. That sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? Well, what about me? Can I screw it up? You better hope not. Because if I can screw it up, I will. If we can mess it up, we will. But God, Paul says, no. I'm convinced. Neither life nor death, angels nor demons, the present nor the future, nor any powers, height or depth, nor anything else in all creation. That's pretty much nothing. Or everything. Will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. That is the big so what of the sovereignty of God. If God's at work for you, if He's at work for His people, if He is sovereign over all things, if, if He loves you, if He's called you, if He's working in your heart and life, then guess what? Nothing. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not even you. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Isn't that an amazing pillow on which you can go and lay your head at night? The reformers came out of this. They struggled with this. They, they, they did not feel that certainty and that surety. They were not experiencing that level of comfort and who God is and, and if He's for me, who can be against me? And it was, it had an enlarged measure to do with a, a lot of various doctrines that had risen up in the church. And it, it, they had obscured it. They had clouded this amazing truth. The, the, the truth that Joseph himself understood all the way back at the end of Genesis, right? After his brothers had sold him into slavery and all of these terrible things had happened to him. And then he rose to power. And he was able to say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That many might be saved. See, God's at work. Reformers put it this way, and I'll just close with a couple of these. John Calvin, who wrote in the first chapter or two of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, probably one of the greatest single works produced in the last 500 years, 
he wrote this, So it must be concluded that while the turbulent state of the world, does the world feel a little bit turbulent? Absolutely. It feels like the wheels are coming off. It felt like the wheels were coming off to John Calvin 500 years ago. And so he says, so we must, con- it, so it must be concluded that while the turbulent state of the world deprives us of judgment. Now what, what Calvin means by that is, while the turbulent nature of everything that's going around us deprives us of the ability to control it. Okay? We have no say in what is happening. And so while that is true, God, by the pure light of his own righteousness and wisdom, regulates these very, uh, re- regulates these very commotions in the most exact order and directs them to their proper end. That was a simple way that Calvin expressed his confidence in the sovereignty of God. And here's what he's saying. The world feels like it is a top and it is just spinning away. And even though that's happening, and even though I have no say in, in all of those things that are happening, and he probably had in his mind Rome, he probably had in his mind all sorts of other things that were taking place in his limited little world. And while all of those things are happening, I know that God, by the pure light of his righteousness and wisdom and his power and his glory, He's got it. He's owning it. He's directing it to their what? Proper end. I'm going to close with this. Gratitude, he said, and prosperity, patience and adversity, and a wonderful security respecting the future. Because he knew. Listen, this great doctrine comes to us this morning, and it lands right here on this table. Because if you go back and you read Peter's words as Peter preached that sermon in Acts chapter 2, what Peter said was all of these men were in control, all the steps along the way, in order that Christ Jesus would be crucified. And God, he is essentially saying in that passage, is sovereign over the crucifixion of Christ. And out of that crucifixion, out of the death of the Son of God, the the sinless God-man who walked on this planet and never sinned not once, out of that calamity, out of that terrible ordeal that Christ went through, comes. Salvation for me and you. There is no greater picture of God working all things together for the good of his people, for those whom he has called, than the supper that you and I are getting ready to partake of. If God wasn't in the supper, if he wasn't in the death and resurrection of Christ, there's no hope for us. But the Bible clearly plays it out. And because Christ went to the cross, because He died, and because He was raised again, you and I have life.
Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you this morning for this meal as we come to it. We pray that, Father, this table would be for us a great encouragement, a means of grace, that you would build up your people in Jesus' name.